Well, good morning and welcome. My name is John. I'm one of the pastors here and uh, just glad to have all of you worshiping with us on this uh, beautiful Sunday morning. And uh, we are working through the book of Luke right now. And we are uh, looking at Luke chapter 1, verses 5 through 25. Luke 1, 5 to 25. So let's go ahead and read that. In the time of Herod, king of Judah, there was a priest named Zechariah who belonged to the priestly division of Abijah. His wife, Elizabeth, was also a descendant of Aaron. Both of them were righteous in the sight of God, observing all the Lord's commands and decrees blamelessly. But they were childless, because Elizabeth was not able to conceive, and they were both very old. Once, when Zechariah's division was on duty, he was serving as a priest before God. He was chosen by lot, according to the custom of the priesthood, to go into the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And when the time for the burning of incense came, all the assembled worshipers were praying outside. Then an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing at the right side of the altar of incense. When Zechariah heard him, he was startled and gripped with fear. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you are to call him John. He will be a joy and delight to you, and many will rejoice because of his birth, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He is never to take wine or other fermented drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even before he is born. He will bring back many of the people of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous, to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Zechariah asked the angel, How can I be sure of this? I am an old man, and my wife is well along in years. The angel said to him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I have been sent to speak to you and to tell you this good news. And now you will be silent and not able to speak until the day this happens, because you did not believe my words, which will come true at their appointed time. Meanwhile, the people were waiting for Zechariah and wondering why he stayed so long in the temple. When he came out, he could not speak to them. They realized he had seen a vision in the temple, for he kept making signs to them but remained unable to speak. When his time of service was completed, he returned home. After this, his wife Elizabeth became pregnant and for five months remained in seclusion. The Lord has done this for me, she said. In these days, he has shown his favor and taken away my disgrace among the people. And this is God's word. Let's pray. Our Father, we ask that you would speak to us today, Lord. Uh, Father, you know the hearts of every person here. You know our fears, you know our distractions, you know our disgrace. And we ask, Lord, that the power of your Spirit would now use my simple words and do something supernatural through them to make us look more like Jesus, to grow us into the fullness of Christ. Father, we ask that you would do that now. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Well, a number of you probably know that uh, I lived in Hawaii for a few years, and if you've ever been there, you know that Hawaii is always somewhere between 70 to 80 degrees, and it is always raining on one part of the island and sunny on another part of the island, and that means there's always a rainbow to be seen. Now, you might have trouble believing this, but when I lived in Hawaii, I missed 
winter. <laughs> I missed, I think, having those four seasons and the change that it brings. I missed that joy of spring after experiencing the cold, and uh, which I've been in particularly enjoying this spring because it has been after a long winter. This is probably why I think the last three sermons I've been talking about the weather in every single one. And one of the things that amazes me about spring is how quickly the plants change from that hibernation in winter to that spring growth. I mean, it can be 32 degrees out one day, and then we have a warm weekend with sun and warm air, and it is amazing how the plants just sprout to life. I remember we have some variegated irises in our yard, and one day I saw them, and they were about this tall, just poking above the mulch. And it seems like that next day they had grown three or four inches within 24 hours. And it is amazing how our world responds to the warmth of the sun. And I think there's something similar going on in our passage today, that God's presence, His Spirit, is like that warm spring sun that causes life to blossom wherever its rays are directed. We're beginning a series through the book of Luke called The King Has Come. And one of the things that I want us to see as we work through Luke is that there are cosmic implications for Jesus coming to the world. That Jesus coming and his resurrection, it doesn't just mean something for you personally, although it does, but it means something for the world cosmically. That Jesus resurrection started the first beginnings of a cosmic springtime that will overtake the world until his people and his creation reflect his beauty. You see that being a Christian means you're part of something bigger than just yourself, that you are on a journey with all of God's people to be transformed into God's fullness, representing His glory and grace and being ambassadors for that God in a world that is stuck in an eternal winter and showing them the grace and the love and the joy and the fragrance of Christ and the change that He brings to the world. We are ambassadors. Our, Our message is spring is coming. And what I want us to remember this morning is that God's Spirit brings blossoms of life wherever it goes. God's Spirit brings blossoms of life wherever it goes. And we're just going to walk through the story here and then look at a few applications. So the story picks up during this time of Herod, king of Judah. Now, that, there were a number of kings or rulers or governors named Herod, so it can kind of get confusing to keep them all separate. This Herod was known as Herod the Great. And he got that name because he completed a bunch of great building projects. He rebuilt the temple in Jerusalem, making it much larger and exquisite than the previous one. But he was also a ruthless king. If anyone crossed him, he didn't hesitate to have them put away or even killed. And this included members of his own family. And so he died, being called Herod the Great, accomplished a lot, but no one mourned his death because it meant they all had a better chance of living. And it's important to remember that as the New Testament kicks off, that the New Testament begins a period after God had been silent for some 400 years. The last of 
the Old Testament books, including Malachi, which we studied a little bit earlier this year, was written some 400 or more years before the New Testament story kicks off. And during that time, the Jews wrestled with whether or not God had forgotten them. They found themselves subject to a number of different rulers and tyrants and oppressors, and God was silent. And they wondered, have we screwed up? Is God done with us? Is he tired giving us second and third and fourth chances? Has he forgotten about us? Is he even there? I think this is where we can sympathize with those people living in those early New Testament days, because probably many of you have spent time wondering if God is still there. Has God forgotten about me? Does God hear my prayers? Is God, why are you so far away? And it can be really hard to keep showing up, keep praying, keep trying to be faithful when it seems like God doesn't even care about you. And that's the world these people lived in. And we're introduced to this family, Zechariah and his wife Elizabeth, and they don't have any kids, and they're well past the age where they have any hope of that changing. And those of you in our congregation who've struggled to get pregnant or to carry a baby to a full term, you can understand some of that heartbreak and some of that burden and some of the questioning that occurs. Why, Lord? What are we doing wrong? What should we be doing? And we live in a day where you can take all kinds of tests, you can try all kinds of different procedures to increase your odds of getting pregnant, and yet, from my observation, that doesn't make it any easier. In some ways, it just leaves even more questions and more crying out to God and more false starts. And so often, whether it's wanting to have a child or something else that you deeply long for, you can struggle after each month, it's still just one pink line, not pregnant. And you start to question, what's wrong with me? Why is God letting this happen to me? And again, whether it's pregnancy or anything else, you then run through your life and think of all the ways that you screwed up and all the reasons why God might want you to suffer. Oh, I knew I shouldn't have done that stuff in high school. I knew I should have waited for intimacy until I got married. I knew God was going to hold those things against me. And telling others that you're trying to get pregnant can feel like a two-edged sword because you want the support of some. But at some point after you've told people of this sixth negative test or another miscarriage, the shame of that can feel greater than the support. And you start to wonder, what are other people thinking about me? What's wrong with her? Why is her body broken? And you see, that's the very same feeling that we have with Elizabeth. She alludes to that at the very end of her passage, verse 25, the Lord has taken away my disgrace among the people. Elizabeth lived her whole life with that disgrace hanging around her neck, damaged goods. This was even more so back then when so much of a, a woman's worth was tied up in her ability to bear children. And that's why I don't want you to miss verse 6. Both of them were righteous in the sight of God, observing all of the Lord's commands and decrees blamelessly. Now, Scripture says that sin can lead to consequences. God does discipline us for our sins, 
But God's discipline is meant to lead us to repentance, to lead us to clinging more tightly to Christ. He doesn't discipline us just to see us grovel in the dust and have perpetual feelings of guilt. So if you find yourself in difficult circumstances, if you find yourself having given a prayer for months and maybe years on end and it is still not answered, it's a good idea to take a survey of your life. Are there sins I'm hiding? Are there sins I've grown numb to or accustomed to? And realize that if you do see those things, God is quick to forgive and to separate your sins as far as the east is from the west. He will not hold them over your head, but he will lay them on Christ and never think of them again. But we should also realize that you can be praying for something for decades and doing everything right, like our passage says, following God's commands and decrees blamelessly. And notice it says they did this in the sight of God and yet still experience decades of disappointment and suffering and longing for God to change something. Why is my health only getting worse? And no doctor can tell me what's wrong. Why do I continue to struggle with bipolar or deep depression or other mental illnesses And for all the ways I've grown in managing it, I can still slip so quickly into the darkness. Why is it every time we seem to get some money saved, the car breaks down again, and we're right back where we started? Why am I stuck in this job that is sucking the life out of me? And why do these things happen? Why do we suffer like this? Even when you've done nothing wrong. Or it's worse, you're trying to do everything right, and yet one wave keeps knocking you down after another, and you never get the chance to get your breath back. And the answer that we have is that we live in a sinful world, and the stain of sin affects every single corner of that world. Regardless of whether you're doing anything right or wrong, you cannot escape feeling that weight and the sting of sin. It means your body will break down. Things won't work right. It means you're going to get sick. It means you'll struggle with infertility. Your hormones get all mixed up. Your cars break down. You get in car wrecks. These are the effects of living in a world that is stained by sin. It's like campfire smoke. It gets into everything. And it is why we as God's people long for Christ's kingdom to come. It's why we long for those first blossoms of God's kingdom, because it is a sign that there is a new world coming where that world does not have any fragrance of sin, where everything works as it's supposed to, where there is no more crying or shame or heartbreak or loss. And that is why Jesus came. Let's get back to the story. So Zechariah is this priest. His job is to work inside of the temple. And from what we can tell that there were a bunch of different priests organized into different groups. And each priest would often serve for a stint of, in the temple for two weeks. And he did that twice a year. 
And so it's Zechariah's turn for his division to go and to serve. And there were a bunch of different duties that these priests would do when they were serving. So from all the different ways that they had to receive the sacrifices and the offerings, to slaughtering them and preparing them, to starting the fire and tending to it. And then there were a bunch of duties that priests had to do inside the temple. And one of those was taking care of the incense. So before the sacrifices started, someone would go into the temple to light the incense. And after the last sacrifice that night, they would light another round of incense. And the incense represented the prayers of the people, the smoke going up to heaven before God. And each day they drew lots to decide who would get what job. And so it could have worked something like, imagine a bunch of little stone pieces and on each one of those stones was written a a different duty that you had in the temple. And they would stick them in a big jar, mix them all up. And then one by one, each priest would grab a stone to see what his job is that day. And so uh, Zechariah draws the incense job. So he gets ready, he prepares himself, goes inside of the temple, he starts to, he performs the prayers and gets ready to light the incense, and all of a sudden, an angel shows up. And he tells him, your prayer has been heard. Now, there's some ambiguity here. Was he just praying about this then, or was it some other time? I don't want to make too much of this, but I think it's interesting that the angel does say his prayer, singular, has been heard. Not his prayers, have been heard, but his prayer. And then combined with that detail that they were both very old, my guess would be, and again, you could take this different ways, but my guess is they'd stopped praying to be able to have kids. They were way too old now. And yet, it's a beautiful picture of how God remembers those longings of our hearts even long after we've forgotten them or we've stopped praying them. God remembers your prayers even after you've stopped praying them, even when you think it's too late, even when you've stopped hoping. God has a list of everything you've longed for. Now, some of those longings aren't good, and God doesn't give you those things, but so many of our longings, God is preparing us to be able to have them. And it's so often when we forget about them that God is ready to give them to us. God doesn't forget anything that you've asked for. And the angel then gives some details about this child. You call him John. He will be a joy and delight to you. Many will rejoice at his birth. And then there's all these other details about not drinking any wine or fermented drink. (laughs) Sorry, no kombucha for him. (laughs) He will be filled with the Holy Spirit from before he is born. And these restrictions reflect the requirements for what was called the Nazarite in the Old Testament. And the Nazarites were special people set apart by God for specific religious service. They often played an outsized role in redeeming or helping to save some of God's people. The most famous of the Nazarites is Samson. Probably every one of you have heard of him. He was that strong man in the Bible, and his birth actually has a number of parallels to our passage. This is from Judges chapter 6. A certain man named Manoah had a wife who was childless, unable to give birth. The angel of the Lord appeared to her and said, you are now barren and and childless, but you are now going to become pregnant and give birth to a son. Now see to it that you drink no wine or other fermented drink and that you do not eat anything unclean. You will become pregnant and have a son whose head is never to be touched by a razor because the boy is to be a Nazarite. 
dedicated to God from the womb. He will take the lead in delivering Israel from the hands of the Philistines. And so we see very similar here. John is given this special role from before birth. And what will his mission be? Verse 16, he will bring back many people of Israel to the Lord their God. And so Zechariah hears all this, and he's, dream- he's wondering, am I dreaming? This- can this be real? Did I drink too much fermented drink? Is this actually happening? So he asked the angel, well, how do I know if this is real or not? And before we jump on his case for doubting, I think this is probably a reasonable question to ask. For instance, when God tells Abraham about these outsized promises, your barren wife, Sarah, is going to have a baby, and then I'm going to give you all of this land. you know what Abraham does? He asks, Lord, how can I know that I'll gain possession of the land? And then God tells him, and he enters into this covenant ceremony to guarantee that promise. So Zechariah probably just thought he was being like Abraham and asking the question, but the angel's like, you want a sign? I'll give you a sign. You won't be able to talk for the next nine months until your child's born. And while this is going on, there's all these people outside the temple who have been praying, but now it's taking a lot longer than normal, and they're wondering what's going on in there. And going into the temple is always a risky thing, and so maybe they start wondering, what, did Zechariah do something wrong? Had he not prepared himself? Had he not purified himself? Is he lying dead in there? They start to worry. But then he comes out, and they're wondering, well, what took you so long? What happened in there? And he, tries to speak, and he can't. It's the first historical record of charades, right, where it says he has to make all of these hand gestures, right? One word, flaps wings, halo, angel, right? Trying to get the people to understand what happened to him in there. And then I love the next little detail. When his time of service was completed, he returned home. You would think if you encounter an angel at work, they would let you take the rest of the day off, to go home and and think about it, especially if the angel told you, guess what? You're going to have a baby, and you've been waiting decades for that. You'd say, hey, can I just take the rest of the day off to go tell my wife? Nope. Sorry, your shift doesn't end till 11 p.m. You got to stay till then. And so finally, his tour of duty ends, and only then he can go home and share the news. But kind of, right? I would love to see the picture of that. Here, Zechariah comes home, His wife, Elizabeth, greets him, and he can't talk. (laughs) And he's so excited, but he can't talk. And she's like, why are you so excited? But you can't talk. And so then he's trying to act it out. He could write, which he does later on. But it's not like they had cheap paper, right? So imagine him. He's got a a stone tablet, and he's scratching out words on that, trying to explain to his wife that they're going to have a baby. And Elizabeth probably has a million questions, and uh, it would have been just this comical scene. It'd be worse than, I was thinking of, you know, those old cell phones where you have to push one three times to get to the letter C, right? This is what Zechariah is having to do to give that birth announcement. But he's able to get the message across. He said, we're going to have a baby, so we better get busy trying. In verse 27, his wife becomes pregnant, and she remained in seclusion for five months. Well, you know, if you were 70 and found out you were pregnant, you'd probably be on bed rest for at least five months. And then she worships. The Lord has done this for me. In these days, he has shown his favor and taken away my disgrace from among the people. God turned her mourning into dancing. So we've kind of worked through the story. I want to tie it all together. How does this apply to us? And I think 
on one hand, it's very easy to kind of get some wires crossed in the application. One of those ways would be to think that if I just try hard enough, or if I wait long enough, God will answer my prayer to be able to have a baby, for my wife to get pregnant. And we have a number of notable stories in Scripture where barren women get pregnant. God can do that. And yet I suspect that there were many more whose names we don't have in the Bible who died never having a baby. We might be tempted to apply this story to any situation where we find ourselves longing for something, something better. We desperately want God to to give it to us, and we think, okay, well, maybe he, he will if I just wait long enough. But sometimes these types of stories can turn on us, and we wonder, why did God do that amazing thing for them, but not for me? But I want us to go back to that main point that I brought up. God's Spirit brings blossoms of life wherever it shines. You see, we all live in a world that is deeply affected by sin. There is a sense in which we are living in an eternal winter. And God's Spirit is like the rays of the spring sunshine that thaws the barren ground and causes life to blossom. God's presence is His Spirit, and where His presence is manifested, the world starts to look more like it should. Imagine these rays of heavenly light breaking through the clouds and creating life wherever it shines. And we we see that in Psalm 113. God stoops to look down on heaven and on earth. He He lifts the poor from the dust and the needy from the garbage dump. He sets them among princes and of his own people. He gives the childless woman a family, making her a happy mother. Praise the Lord. That God's presence, whenever he manifests his presence in our world, it shows signs of that new creation life. And what we have in our story is it's like God's presence came and shone down on Zechariah and Elizabeth, and we get a little picture of what life is supposed to look like. Her womb is healed. They're a happy family. They have the baby And why doesn't God do that all right now? Well, we don't know why. But what those signs are is they are little pictures, little previews of what is to come. That is what it means to have the new creation that we are waiting for. That one day those rays won't just break through the clouds in this world where we are living, but God will remove every cloud and his fullness will shine on this world and he will make it new so that not just one woman's womb blossoms with life, but the entire world will blossom with life and beauty, and everything will be how it's supposed to be. And that is what we're waiting for as Christians. That is what we're longing for. And God gives us these little previews to remind us, whether it's the preview of the spring and you see those first flowers in your yard, or the rejoicing of being able to have your first child. He shows you those things to remind you, to tell you, this is what is coming. The best is yet to come. And that renewal happens spiritually first, in our hearts, in our lives, that God's life, His Spirit, melts, tills up our stony, stubborn hearts to till them so that we can blossom in our lives spiritually. And then when Jesus returns, he will begin that work of renewing everything physically. 
so that our bodies, though dying now, will one day give way to bodies that will never be tainted by any pain or sickness or disease. And so, what does that mean for us? Well, first, where is God's Spirit manifesting itself today? Well, it's first through His people. That when you become a Christian, when you look in faith to Christ, His Spirit comes into you and does that work. And that means that if you are in Christ, you are living with the holy and healing Spirit of Christ in your heart. Romans 8, 9, and 10. But you are not controlled by your sinful nature. You are controlled by the Spirit if you have the Spirit of the living God in you. And Christ lives within you. So even though your body will die because of sin, the Spirit gives you life because you've been made right with God. The Spirit of God who raised Jesus from the dead lives in you. And so that means if you're a Christian, your life should be showing blossoms of God's kingdom. Your life should smell like the sweet fragrance of Christ wherever you go. Do you see yourself being transformed to look more like Jesus? What is controlling your life right now? Are you letting your old self, your old ways, your old habits, your past rule you? Or are you letting that life-giving power of the Spirit till up your stubborn heart and mold it into what God has destined for you? Are you letting the healing rays of God's, God's sunshine bring life into your barren soul. And then when we gather as a church, God's Spirit is manifest in a particular way, even in a more powerful way. And that means that the church here on earth needs to strive to be more of a place that tastes of heaven than of earth. That when we gather, we are gathering as an embassy of heaven that people should smell the sweetness of heaven when they come in here that they should experience something that feels more like spring than winter. Uh, the, world, the church needs to look more like the new creation where sin is fading away and where we hold on to the hope that we know things will get better instead of being overcome by whatever has happened in the world. And this renewal happens spiritually first. But when Jesus returns, that renewal will happen physically. And so in that time of waiting, we need to be a place where every from people from every nation and tribe and tongue and background can come together and breathe deep that love of Christ and experience that love of Christ and how we love one another. The church needs to be an embassy of heaven. It means to be a place where people come in from a snowstorm of life and feel the warmth and know that spring is coming and see blossoms of new life and have that hope of heaven. Let's pray. Our Father, we ask that you would help us to be agents of your healing power, to carry the fragrance of Christ wherever we go, to reflect little bits of his beauty. We pray that our church would reflect the glory and warmth and joy of heaven more than it does of whatever's happening on this earth. We pray that this would be a place of healing, a place of growth, a place of restoration. Father, we ask that you would do these things. Only you can. We pray them all in Christ's name.